Well, I count it a privilege to be here once again with you to look at this ever-important topic of faithful biblical evangelism. As you know, this is the fourth and final part of a four-part evangelism training seminar. And basically, the way we've structured it is that I just wanted to ask and then answer a number of different questions as it relates to this topic of biblical evangelism. So far, as you know, we've looked at the first five questions. We'll briefly review those tonight, and then we'll look at the final three. And again, if you have any questions while I'm going through this, if you could just jot them down, and then at the end, we'll take whatever questions you have. Now, briefly in review, if you remember, the first question that we asked was this. We said, what is evangelism? Because if we're going to do a seminar on evangelism, we need to know what it is to start out. And so after looking at several things that evangelism is not, we basically defined evangelism this way. We said evangelism is essentially the act of clearly and accurately communicating the gospel message irrespective of the results. Therefore, so-called success in evangelism is measured by the clarity and accuracy of the gospel message given and not by the results that flow from that. And it's imperative that we understand that because otherwise we'll be prone, one, to discouragement when people don't respond the way we desire them to respond. And then number two, we'll be prone to compromise the message in order to try to get people to respond the way we want them to respond. So it's important for us to understand that our responsibility is not the results. God handles that. Our responsibility is clearly and accurately communicating the gospel message. Well, that led to the second question. If that's what evangelism is, then what is the gospel or what is the gospel message? And in response to that question, we looked at two key passages that clearly address that issue, namely 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4. And then we looked at Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 4. And we essentially define the gospel this way. We said the gospel is a message of good news, because that's what the Greek word euangelion means, good news. It's a message of good news rooted in historical facts and centered upon the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, namely his substitutionary life, death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. And we basically looked at how to succinctly share that message, that gospel message with others, starting one with God the creator and man's accountability to him. Romans 1 talks about that. And then we move from God the creator to man the sinner and his guilt and just condemnation before God his creator and his helpless, hopeless predicament since um, there's nothing and the fact that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves Because, as we've said before, God demands either perfection or punishment. And since none of us are perfect, it really leaves only two options, right? One, we be punished perpetually forever in hell. Or two, we hope that God perhaps would be gracious and provide a substitute to provide the perfection for us that we can't provide for ourselves, right? And that is the gospel. That is the good news that we were hopeless, we were helpless, but God sent help from the outside. He didn't have to do it. He wasn't required to do it. It was an act of grace. And so we move then from God the creator, man the sinner, to really the, the core of the gospel, Christ the Savior, who alone could bear man's punishment with his substitutionary death on the cross and who could alone provide the spotless, perfect righteousness for man through his sinless life. And then his resurrection obviously served to vindicate his person and his claims, and it served to validate the Father's acceptance of his work on behalf of all those who, leading to the fourth part, repent and believe. So you got God the Creator, man the sinner, Christ the Savior, and then the necessary response of repentance and faith. Repentance being turning away from sin due to a genuine hatred of the evil that is in it and the offense that it is to God, and Faith being a self-emptying, no confidence, no hope placed in yourself, all of your confidence, all of your trust, all your dependence, all your reliance placed solely and exclusively on the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone is your only ground of acceptance before God. Even Our faith doesn't save us. Our faith simply unites us to Christ who alone saves us. And so we talked about that's kind of a, a brief summary of how to share the gospel. And then the third question we asked, not only what is evangelism, what is the gospel, but who should share the gospel? In response to that, we said simply every genuine born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In other words, this is the responsibility of every single Christian, not just a select few like pastors or teachers or those with the gift of evangelism or those who are naturally more outgoing and gregarious and just find it easier to go up to strangers or to talk to people or just those who are more spiritually mature in their faith and like you have to reach a certain pinnacle of understanding before you can share the gospel. No, this is a requirement for every genuine believer. So it does put a premium on us to know the gospel, but all of us are required to do this. And we saw several passages that bear that out, namely Matthew 28, 18-20, which is the Great Commission after Christ's resurrection, 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21, and then we looked at 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. Well, that led us then to the fourth question, why should we share the gospel? And we said there's a number of different reasons. We looked at eight brief ones. That, I mean, you could come up with a multitude of more, but just briefly in review. First, we evangelize because evangelism is obedience to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18-20. And then you can look at all the other parallel uh, Great Commission passages. Second, because those who are impressed with what they've been given in the gospel desire to share it with others. Third, because evangelism is a means to spreading the fame of God, as 2 Corinthians 4.15 tells us. And that should be the greatest passion and longing and desire of every true believer, is that God's fame would go global and that he would be known and praised by all. Fourth, because evangelism is an opportunity to praise God. 1 Peter 2.9 talks about it's we're proclaiming the excellencies of God. We're declaring his, that there's the infinite beauty of his manifold perfections put on display in the gospel every time we proclaim it. Fifth, we share the gospel because we share God's heart for the lost. You see an example of that in Luke 15 in that great parable of the father running in the most undignified way in that culture toward uh, a repentant son. You see it in Ezekiel 18.32 that he doesn't desire that the, the, the death of any, that any would perish. And then sixth, we evangelize, striving to win souls in light of standing before Christ at the judgment, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11. Seventh, we evangelize because of the eternal destiny of the unbeliever, knowing the infinite horrors of hell and the infinite glories of heaven we should be motivated knowing that that was once our plight and the only reason it's not is because God was gracious and he sent a messenger to us, either a pastor or a friend or somebody that shared the gospel or just simply gave us a Bible and we read it. But the bottom line is that would be us if it wasn't God's grace and our hearts should be burdened for those around us who are created in the image of God, that they're um, really just rejecting their creator. And we know that the, the plight that they're headed to. And then eighth, we evangelize because evangelism is something that we're not going to be able to do in heaven. It's going to be too late then. And so that really should propel within us a sense of urgency in this task. And then fifth, we asked the question, what are some of the typical hindrances to evangelism? In other words, what are some of the reasons why we don't share the gospel more faithfully, more fervently, more frequently, and how can we overcome that? And we said, we listed five reasons. I'm sure there's more, but... First, we said, because oftentimes we're self-absorbed and self-consumed. In other words, we're unable to see the needs around us because we're so caught up in ourselves and our own agendas and what we have to do, our own plans, our own purposes. Or we do see the needs, and frankly and sadly, our hearts are so cold and so callous that we're indifferent to people around us. Or we're too busy and we're unwilling to be inconvenienced to stop and to meet those needs by sharing the gospel with others. And we looked at just the, the parable of the Good Samaritan as an example of that. Second, because we fear man and we're so concerned with what others will think of us or say about us or do to us that we don't share the gospel. We fear the uncomfortable tension it might cause in relationships, the awkwardness it might cause in a conversation. And so we fear man more than we fear God. We're more concerned with what other people think about us than we are with their eternal salvation and God's glory. And so really it's rooted in self-love. It's all about me and I'm concerned about my image and my reputation before others. And we said we must, by the grace of God, exchange the fear of man for the fear of God because there's so many passages that talk about it. Galatians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 
to four just great passages that if you're still fearing man, you can't be a servant of Christ, Galatians 1.10. Third, we said because we're ill-equipped and ill-prepared and we don't know the gospel, and as a result, we're not able to clearly and cogently and comprehensively and confidently and compellingly share it with others, so we shy away from gospel ministry opportunities. And yet, what did Peter say? Always be ready to give an answer, a defense for the reason for the hope that lies within you. Don't be like him when that servant girl came up and he denied Christ three times. Fourth, we lack true conviction in the truth of the gospel. We looked at 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 15, Paul quoting the psalmist in Psalm 116, says there in 2 Corinthians 4, 13, I believed and therefore I spoke. It was such a deeply rooted conviction of Paul that he was compelled to speak about the gospel. You know, Acts 4, 19 to 21, Peter talks about the same thing. We can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. When you have deeply rooted convictions in the truth of the gospel and you believe in the reality of it, it compels you to share it with others. And so one of the things we need to do then is just continue to deepen our conviction in the gospel. And then fifth, we said, because of unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our lives or just a lack of holiness, nothing's going to silence us quicker than a guilty conscience, right? How are you going to boldly proclaim something to one person when you're not living it yourself? Your conscience rises up to accuse you. There's going to be a lack of boldness, a lack of fearlessness. And you see the psalmist in Psalm 51, David, crying out that he would be cleansed, that he might go and start speaking to others again, Psalm 51, 13. Well, that leads us now tonight to the sixth question, as that is, how should we share the gospel? And by that, I don't mean what methodology should we use, like the four spiritual laws or Romans Road or Evangelism Explosion or the Way of the Master, where we bring the law to bear on people's hearts to expose their sin and their guilt. I personally don't think that there's one cookie-cutter method that we should subscribe to or to confine ourselves to. Instead, I think we should thoroughly understand the Word of God as a whole and thoroughly understand the Gospel in particular and how to take people from creation to recreation. You look at Jesus, he's in different scenarios, in different situations. He's not saying the same thing every time. He's just taking the Word of God and bringing it to bear on people's hearts. And in the same way, we should have a thorough, comprehensive knowledge of the Word of God and be able to take them from creation to recreation. Basically, starting with God as creator, moving to man as an accountable creature, guilty before God, his creator, moving to Christ the Savior, specifically who he is and what he's done to save sinners, to the necessary response of repentance and faith in the person and finished work of Christ, to the demands of submission to Christ's lordship, and then comforting them with the reality that when they truly do repent and believe, they will not only be justified, but adopted and positionally sanctified and then permanently indwelt with the power of the Spirit who will enable them and empower them to live holy lives, not as the ground of their salvation, but as the necessary proof and evidence of their salvation. And then uh, talking about the great hope that this isn't even the end. One day we're going to experience full and final redemption. Romans 8.23 talks about it. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons. The, the goal is for Christ to come back and to create a new heavens and a new earth and to give us redeemed, sinless, glorified bodies that are no longer plagued by sin and sickness and weakness and sorrow to dwell in his intimate and immediate presence for all eternity, beholding the infinite beauty of his manifold perfections. Just, it is going to be a fullness of joy, everlasting and ever-increasing joy in his presence, worshiping him, serving him, doing the things that we were originally created to do. It's going to be uh, uh, basically a new Eden, only it's going to be better because sin will never enter this one. And so that's the gospel, is taking them from the beginning to the end. And in different conversations, you might only have time for certain elements, but you need to help them understand their guilt before their creator, and there's nothing they can do to save themselves, and that Christ is the only hope, and they need to respond in repentance and faith. So I'm not talking about so much how to share in the sense of a methodology. I'm talking more in the manner in which we should share the gospel. And let me just give you several things that the Bible talks about when it comes to the manner in which we should share the gospel. The first one is boldly. Turn me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4 so you can see this. 
<clears throat> when I use the word boldly, I don't mean uh, loudly necessarily. I don't mean um, offensively. I don't mean abrasively. I just mean in un- an uncompromised fashion. You're not, you're not going to cower in fear and you're not going to capitulate or compromise on the truth of the gospel or apologize for it. <clears throat> Notice in Acts 4, the early Christians are here, they're being persecuted, they're crying out for boldness to continue to witness in the face of this persecution. Notice verse 29, And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all what? Confidence or boldness. While you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with what? Boldness. There's God responding to their prayer, filling them with the Holy Spirit and empowering them for bold gospel witness. Listen, if we're going to be bold in witness, it's not going to come as a result of our own native powers. It's going to come as a result of the empowerment of the Spirit in response to dependent, believing prayer, just like you see here. Turn with me to Acts chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 6 for a minute. Ephesians chapter 6. Now most of us typically think of the Apostle Paul as some super apostle, right? He was completely unlike us, we think. He was never uh, fearful, never timid. He never struggled like we do. And yet, that's not really the case based on certain texts like Acts uh, Acts 18, verses 9 and 10, where he's in Corinth and Christ has to come to him and he says, you know, "Do do not fear, but keep on speaking. And do not be afraid, for no man shall harm you. And he says, I have many people in this city. And then in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, he talks about how he was with them in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Well, here in Ephesians 6, verses 18 to 20, he's under house arrest in Rome. It's the same house arrest when he wrote the other captivity or prison epistles. Philippians, which we just went through, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. They were all written during that one, two-year stay in his house arrest in Rome from 60 to 62 AD. So here he is, the chain on his wrist, and in some sense there seems to be some sort of implication perhaps of uh, a timidity and so he requests boldness notice verse 18 he says with all prayer and petition pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf and what is it that he wants them to pray on his behalf notice the content clause giving the content of the prayer that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with what Boldness, the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, referring to his house arrest, that in proclaiming it I may speak how? Boldly, as I ought to speak. Paul says that's how I'm to share the gospel, with boldness. I'm not to cower in fear, I'm not to capitulate, I'm not to compromise, I'm not to apologize for the gospel. And so Paul says, I pray... Or Paul says to the Ephesians, pray that I would be bold and fearless because naturally I'm not bold and fearless. Naturally I'm timid and fearful just like you Ephesians. Just like timid Timothy, right? Second Timothy 1, Paul said, I've not given you, the Lord's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And he's talking in that context of Timothy cowering in fear because of his association with Paul and his chains and worried about the persecution that might come upon him. And so every one of us struggles with this native timidity. And so we need to pray for boldness because that's how we ought to speak the gospel, Paul says. Well, the second way we should share the gospel, not just boldly, but also clearly. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 4 verses 2 through 4, here we see Paul praying for open doors of gospel ministry opportunity and also for clarity in sharing the gospel. In verse 2, he writes to the Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word 
so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. So again, he's referring to that same house arrest. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. And so that puts a real premium on us. One, to know the gospel. And then two, to grow by God's grace in our ability to clearly communicate the gospel to others. So that they can understand it and respond to it by grace. So let me ask you, how are you doing at those things? Are you working on them? Growing in your knowledge of the gospel? And then two, in your ability to clearly communicate the gospel? We should because we have a responsibility to share it, not only boldly, but also clearly. And then third, we should share the gospel, not just boldly, not just clearly, but also graciously and winsomely. Graciously and winsomely. And the contrast would be not abrasively or arrogantly or argumentatively or offensively or condescendingly. There's nothing that's going to tarnish your witness quicker than being abrasive or arrogant in how you share it. Listen, the gospel may offend people, but we should never personally offend people with our lives or with our manner of speaking or communicating or interacting. Turn me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 21. Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, that is, these dishonorable things that I just mentioned, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, that is, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust. And when we hear that verse, we typically think of youthful lust as being sexual lust. But interestingly, that's actually foreign to the immediate context here. Instead, Paul's likely referring to the lust and the desire and the temptation for young people to arrogantly argue and pridefully quarrel about things. That's what the context is going to bear out here in verse 23. So he says, Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. Avoid being quarrelsome. Notice verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. But, contrast, instead, he must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. And so there's our role, to graciously and patiently preach and teach the gospel in a Christ-like manner. And now here comes God's role. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they will come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And so we faithfully preach and teach the gospel in a Christ-like manner. That's our responsibility, verse 24 to verse 25a. Well, God's responsibility is to grant repentance if he so chooses, verse 25. Folks, it's important to understand this. God and God alone regenerates dead sinners, giving them spiritual life and giving them the gifts of repentance and faith. And I've talked about this before, but if you want to jot the passages down, Acts 5.31, God granted repentance to the Gentiles, or to the Jews. Acts 11.18, God granted repentance to the Gentiles. 2 Timothy 2.25, God grants repentance. Philippians 1.29, God grants repentance. Faith, he gives the ability to believe. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, faith is a gift from God. You don't conjure that up on your own. You are not only unwilling, but you're unable to repent and believe until God regenerates you, giving you the gift of repentance and faith. We can't grant the gifts of repentance and faith to people. Only God could do that. I wish I could. I would to many of my family members and friends and relatives and a lot of people that I desire to see saved. But we need to understand that we don't have the ability to do that. Do you understand that? Conversion is one of the greatest miracles you'll you'll ever see. You have a better chance of calling a universe into existence from nothing than you do calling a dead sinner into spiritual life. That's a miracle, a divine miracle that takes place. That's why we talk about when you share your testimony, there is no boring testimony. 
That's the most incredible miracle that took place. Even if you were raised in a relatively Christian home and were outwardly somewhat moralistic, it doesn't matter. You were dead spiritually on the inside and your heart was just as black as anyone else's and God gave you spiritual life. That's a miracle. That's incredible. And it's important that we understand that. So to try to compromise the message of the gospel in order to manipulate a certain response from our hearers is absolutely foolish and absolutely futile because while we may get people to respond to our watered-down gospel message, it won't be the biblical gospel that they embrace because we haven't faithfully preached it and it won't ultimately be God granting them repentance and faith because God does this in response to the faithful preaching and teaching of his word, not when we alter the message to manipulate a response. God doesn't regenerate people independently of his faithfully preached word. And if we haven't preached the word faithfully, the spirit has no material to work with to regenerate someone's soul. And so we're to preach the gospel boldly, clearly, winsomely, and graciously and pray that God would regenerate their souls. And you could add to that faithfully, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. It's not really the context of evangelism, it's more the context of preaching, and that we're stewards of the mysteries of Christ. That's Paul talking about himself and other church leaders. But he says it's required of a steward to be found faithful in his communication of the gospel. And in that context, it's not going to the wisdom of the world, it's sticking to the revelation of God in Christ. And then another thing would be you're required to do it accurately. And again, 2 Timothy 2.15 is not necessarily a context of evangelism, but Paul writing to Timothy, who's overseeing the church at Ephesus, functioning almost as a pastor, and he says, you know, be a diligent workman who's not ashamed, rightly dividing or accurately handling the word of truth. But the, the implication applies to evangelism as well. So boldly, clearly, graciously, winsomely, faithfully, and accurately is our responsibility. Say, okay, but what happens if I go and do that? How do I respond when somebody rejects me? Well, both Matthew 10.14 and Luke 10.1-16 recount Christ's instructions in sending out the 70 to proclaim the gospel. And he told them that in any place they went, they were to leave when the gospel message was rejected. The point being that when the unsaved person is fixed in their and fixed and resolute in their rejection of the gospel, when it's clear that they have no desire to repent, then focus your efforts elsewhere. Don't stick around and badger them or argue with them. As one writer said, quote, we are to urge men to repentance, Second Corinthians five twenty. God is patient and long suffering with us, not wishing that any should perish, second Peter three nine. And so to stay as long so stay as long as there's a ray of hope, but when they mock God's message and reject you the messenger, Matthew seven six, casting your pearls before swine, then focus your efforts elsewhere, end quote. Well, some helpful principles if you're rejected is one, pray for them. Pray for them. Don't argue with them. Pray for them. Pray that God, you can't argue them into the kingdom. Only God can regenerate them. Pray and ask Him to do for them what only He can do for them. Two, continue to love them and be gracious to them. Don't retaliate against them or abrasively argue with them in an ungodly or unloving or Christ like way. Even if people persecute you and abuse you, you don't respond you know, evil with evil, but return good for evil, right? In so doing, you'll pour burning coals upon their head. Romans 12, uh, verses 17 to 21. And then number three, warn them about hardening their hearts. Hebrews 3 and 4, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, today is the day of salvation. Isaiah 55, call upon the Lord while he's near. There may be a time where he either lets you go and just gives you over to your hardness and removes any sort of gracious influence in your life. Don't harden your heart against him. So don't argue in an unhelpful way because even the way we deal with rejectors is an opportunity to adorn the gospel. Oftentimes it's important to affirm your love for them and your desire to speak with them again if they'll listen. This is particularly important with family members. Pray for them all the more fervently. 
and possibly end with a gracious but sobering warning. For example, you've made some strong statements against what I've showed you from Scripture, and I want you to know that what I showed you is the only way you can be forgiven of your sin. Let, them leave, let me leave you with this thought, where will you spend eternity? By not repenting, you're making the decision to reject the only means of salvation. From what you said, it's clear that you're not interested. You've heard the truth, and I'll continue to pray for your salvation. I always talk about, in evangelism, the three M's in terms of interacting with people. Your motive for doing it, your manner in which you do it, and the message which you do it. It's important that your motive is always the glory of God and the salvation of that person. They're good. Not you trying to win an argument or prove that you're right or they're wrong or to go out and do it to salve a guilty conscience. I, I feel guilty. I haven't been evangelizing. I'm going to go do it to kind of resolve, relieve the guilt for a season until the guilt starts coming again. Your motivation should be that God's glorified and that they're saved. But their salvation is obviously subordinate to God's glory because we know that God is glorified even in the hardening of sinners, right? God gets glory two ways. In the damnation of sinners because he's going to vindicate his holiness, his justice, his truth forever in their damnation. Or he's going to be glorified in the way that he graciously saved them. So anytime you preach the gospel, God's getting glory. His word never returns void, Isaiah 55. So that has to be the ultimate motivation because if your ultimate motivation is the salvation of sinners, you're going to be prone to compromise the message to try to manipulate a response from them rather than letting God do what he alone can do. He's God. He's just. You just need to let him be God. But the goal should be, yes, I desire his glory and I would desire it primarily through their salvation, but I recognize theologically that he's going to get glory other ways. But it doesn't mean I'm indifferent or I become hyper-Calvinistic and say, look, God's God, and if he'll save them, he's going to save them, and I don't care if they get saved. I just know God's glorified. That shouldn't be our mentality. It's not the mentality in the Bible. But it's important to remember that, because if your motive is something else, you'll find yourself getting into arguments when you're evangelizing, when it's not going the way you want it to go, trying to prove that you're right and they're wrong, trying to show them, and that's the worst thing you can do. And the reason is because your motive is wrong. It's become about you now. It's a personal thing about you versus them rather than the glory of God and their salvation. Number two, the manner in which you share the gospel, again, should always be Christ-like, winsome, gracious, patient, not arrogant or argumentative, not self-righteous or disrespectful. Peter says with gentleness and respect, 1 Peter 3.15. And then, because nothing's going to tarnish your gospel witness quicker, even if you're right, even if you know the gospel, the whole book of Titus talks about adorning the doctrine of God. You're going to dishonor God by the manner in which you bring the gospel, even if the gospel you're preaching is true. And then third, your message needs to be not your opinion, not your ideas, your feelings, your emotions, your experiences, your tradition, your upbringing, but the word of God alone pointing them to explicit texts of scripture showing that the text is sovereign and God's word is the ultimate authority, not my preferences or opinions or standards. You're telling them, look, we're both coming under the authority of God's word. It is the ultimate authority. I'm not giving you my opinion. Let me show you from God's word what he says. And so make sure your motive's right, make sure your manner's right, make sure your message is the Bible. Well, that now raises the seventh question, and that is, how, who should we evangelize? And the answer would be, any and every unbeliever that God has placed in our sphere of influence that we have an opportunity to evangelize. No sinner is outside of the bounds of God's grace. I hope you know that. Turn, turn on me real quickly to 1 Timothy 1. This wasn't in my notes, but it's such a helpful passage. 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's really quite fascinating because if you study chronologically in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, which he wrote earlier, probably early 50 AD, he talks about the fact that he, of all the apostles, he's the least of the apostles. He says, look, out of that elite group, I view myself as the, the least. I was a persecutor of the church. And then a little bit later on, in about 60, 61, 
he writes Ephesians, and in Ephesians 3.8, he says, look, out of all the saints, out of all God's people, I'm the least of all them. Well, now, at the end of his life, writing 1 Timothy, he says here in 1 chapter 1, verse 15, not just to the apostles, not just to the saints, but out of every created being, or, or every human being, I'm the worst, I'm the chief of sinners. So as he continued to grow in his understanding of God, and as he grew in his understanding of himself, he started to see just how sinful he really was. But he uses this not, not as you know, self-pity or beating himself up. He uses it as a great encouragement for gospel ministry. Notice verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Now notice this. It is a trustworthy statement. You could take it to the bank. It's deserving of full acceptance. And here's the statement. Here's the content. That Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? Purpose infinitive. To save sinners among whom I am the chief or foremost of all. And notice verse 16. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost or the chief or the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as what? An example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. He says, look, I'm the worst sinner that's ever lived, so everyone else is inside that boundary marker, and if God can save me, then he can save anyone else. What an encouragement. You have any family members that you think, gosh, they're so lost? I don't think there's any hope for them. They've spiraled morally so much that I just think God's given up on them. There's no way they're savable. Paul says, look, I was the chief, I was the worst, and so they can't be worse than me. And God saved me as an example of the kind of sinners he saves because he loves to magnify his grace and his glory by saving the worst of sinners. And so he breaks forth in doxology in verse 17. Notice he says, Now to the King eternal, the immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So the point is, we should share the gospel with anyone and everyone, every unbeliever in our sphere of influence. No one is outside of the bounds of God's grace. Let me just say at this point that it would be a grave mistake for us to view our evangelistic efforts as the standard by which we judge everyone else in terms of faithfulness. It's important to understand that a life with an evangelistic thrust will look different for different Christians who are equally fervent about the gospel. But each of us should certainly long for our lives to intersect with the lives of unbelievers so that we might have gospel influence in their lives, even being proactive and intentional, seeking to initiate opportunities, leaving our comfort zone and our own little orbit to reach out to them, cultivating relationships for the purpose of gospel ministry and bridgeheads of evangelism. Not to the point, however, where we completely settle into the company of unbelievers, letting our guard down and even allowing ourselves either intentionally or unintentionally be influenced by them to the point where we're now partaking with them in sin. Starting to think like they think, starting to speak like they speak, where we're using slang terminology and profanity as the norm of our speech patterns without any pangs of conscience, acting like they act, going the places they go, bars, clubs, casinos, strip joints, you name it and then eventually beginning to sit down among them as a mocker and scoffer of the things of God, as Psalm 1 talks about. No. And so there's a fine, delicate balance that we need to strike here, but we dare not excuse our laziness or our selfishness or our indifference or our comfort idolatries on the one hand by not reaching out to unbelievers in the name of remaining separate, which some people do, and then on the other hand, we dare not excuse our worldliness and our carnality by comfortably settling in to the company of unbelievers so that we can indulge in our sin in the name of reaching out for the sake of the gospel when in reality we just like hanging out with unbelievers because our hearts are carnal just like theirs. We feel very comfortable in their company. So we need to strike an appropriate biblical balance here, and we need to be proactive and intentional in reaching out to unbelievers on the one hand for the sake of the gospel, yet at the same time we need to be wise and discerning and careful and prayerful guarding our hearts as we do. 
We also need to realize that just as the sin in our lives complicates and confuses things, we shouldn't be surprised when sin makes the lives of unbelievers very messy. And so we don't completely shun unbelievers until they can kind of clean up their act or clean up their lives. It just means that we prayerfully and discerningly seek to be gracious gospel influences in their lives, not shocked by their sin or self-righteously judgmental of them and their sin, nor indifferent to their sin, but grieved over it and longing to see Christ save them from it, both from its penalty and its power. Jesus is obviously a great model here as he constantly interacted with the worst of sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and yet at the same time he was always the one who was influencing them rather than them influencing him. And he never partook of their sin in order to try to reach them in the name of contextualization, becoming like the world in order to reach the world. No, we're to be in the world. We're just not to be of the world. We're to be separate and distinct from the world in terms of our moral character inwardly and our external actions outwardly, and yet we're to be rubbing shoulders with them in our daily lives. Remember, Jesus was gracious and loving and patient, but at the same time, he was unbending and uncompromising in his personal convictions and with his standards of truth and holiness. And the gospel, both in terms of living it and in terms of sharing it. And so the same should be true for us. When it comes to deliberately ordering our life for the purpose of evangelism, C.J. Mahaney writes this about Mark Deber, who's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church and the author of the gospel and personal evangelism. He'll be one of the speakers at the Shepherds Conference this year. He says this, quote, He told me that he intentionally frequents, this is Mark Deber telling C.J. Mahaney, C.J.'s Uh, writing this here and he says he told me that he intentionally frequents the same restaurants and businesses so he can develop relationships and hopefully create evangelistic opportunities since that day I've attempted to follow Mark's example and had the joy of sharing the good news with many people I meet along the seemingly uneventful route of daily life end quote that's so true you ever do that you settle into an area you go to the same restaurants what do you do you get to know the people there And all of a sudden, you've built a bridgehead for evangelism and inroads for the gospel. Perhaps you go to the same hair salon or the same barber. Well, what do you have? You've got a captive audience for 30 to 60 minutes right there. You go to the same restaurants and you meet the same servers. You have opportunities to share the gospel with them. Looking for every opportunity you can for the gospel. I remember, and I think I've told it before, but C.J. Mahaney was one of the guest speakers at the Shepherds Conference, and one of our Brian and I's good friends, John Anderson, who's the college pastor at Grace Emanuel Bible Church, now was on. He was out at Grace Community at the time, and his task was to go pick up C.J. from the airport. They stopped at Starbucks to get some coffee on the way, and the lady, you know, gave John too much money back. And he realized it, and he said, oh, ma'am, I think you gave me too much money. I owe you this. And she said, oh, you're so honest. And he's kind of sitting there and going, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty honest. And, you know, he, he tells this story about how he's sitting there taking credit for his honesty. And then he goes, you know, and there's CJ redeeming the opportunity for the gospel. And he says, yeah, and you should have seen him before he knew Christ. And boom, there he is with an inroad towards the gospel. Just constantly at the forefront of his mind, sharing the gospel. If you've ever read his Books. Um, I don't know which book it's in right now. It, it may be in Humility or it may be in um, The Cross-Centered Life, but he talks about, you know, and sometimes it can become cliche, but I know he's genuine when he says it. Somebody will ask, well, how are you doing? And his standard response is, better than I deserve. And all of a sudden they're thinking, what do you mean better than you deserve? And there he is, boom. It's an opportunity to share the gospel and what he actually deserves. Just constantly looking to share the gospel. That's a man who's very intentional in the way he orders his life in terms of where he goes and what he does. And when he goes there, he's constantly and continually got the gospel at the forefront of his mind, seeking to share it with others and using every legitimate means possible. May that be true of us as well. I've even heard this weekend, my wife and... uh, Annie, as you know, went to the mall to see that new Kirk Cameron movie. Well, it happened to be sold out, and so there they were at the mall, uh, hanging out, eating ice cream, and 
two guys came and started hitting on them and you know, they were being a bit rude and said, hey, can, can, how about giving me some of your ice cream? And Annie cleverly said, no, I'm not, I won't give you my ice cream, but I'll give you the gospel. Have you ever heard the gospel? And the next thing you know, there they are sharing the gospel with these two strangers. Just constantly on the forefront of their minds, how can we advance the cause of Christ in everyday life? Well, one of the things I'd recommend in this area is knowing your neighbors, making it a priority to get to know your neighbors. Often getting to know our neighbors is a chore. Most people today in Western uh, individualistic 21st century America are very distant and very individualistic. Now, some Eastern cultures, there's a lot more community to them, but here in America, we're, we're kind of, we like to stay at a distance from everyone else. And so for some of us, our neighbors living next to it, a Christian might be the closest that they ever get to the gospel message. And so we should strive to get to know our neighbors, to have them in our home, to have them over for dinner. Take opportunities to talk to them. Use opportunities like holidays to reach out to them. Look for opportunities to have your life intersect with their lives in a way that would be profitable. Again, wisdom's important here. Nothing's gained for the gospel by compromising your integrity or exposing your family to ungodly influences and activities and putting them in harm's way in any form or fashion. Second, think about not just your neighbors, but people you meet in passing. We should be on the lookout for evangelistic inroads at all times. We regularly cross paths with people, like on an airplane, for example. You fly out to California, you're sitting there for six hours with somebody next to you whose soul might be spending it in eternity, and you have an opportunity, providentially, that God put you next to them clerks at the grocery store, the doctor, the barber, the hairstylist, people at the health club, other places you frequent where you have opportunities, constantly looking for opportunities. We often miss evangelistic opportunities because we're more concerned with going about our business and our personal time frame than we are being distracted or interrupted with interactions with other people. We need to constantly remind ourselves that God's left us here to be ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. I remember one particular time where um, a good friend of ours from Grace Emanuel's brother-in-law was coming to town, and he liked sports. And he was fascinated with the fact that I used to be a professional golfer. And so he set up a golf uh, round for me and his brother-in-law. He didn't even play because he's not a golfer. And Brian and another guy. And I was riding in the cart with him. And all this guy wanted to do is talk about sports and, and my former golf career and this, that, and the other. And, you know, I, finally we get done with nine holes and I haven't said a word about the gospel. I haven't told this guy I'm a Christian. I haven't said anything. And I'm thinking, what a shame it would be if I spent four hours on this golf course driving in the same cart with this guy and all I told him about was how I used to be a professional golfer and how great I was and this and that and the other. And I thought, what a shame it would be, you know? And so there I am wrestling with the, the awkwardness and the uncomfortability of knowing, even beforehand, his bro, you know, my friend, whose brother-in-law was, told me the guy's pretty hostile to the gospel. And so I'm sitting there just praying for an opportunity. And finally, by the grace of God, not by anything in me, I would have shunned the opportunity if I had the possibility to avoid the awkwardness. But just finally on the 11th tee box, I just said, you know, do you, you have any religious background or upbringing or whatever it was? And, you know, can I share the gospel with you? Or have you ever heard a, a clear presentation of the gospel? And I don't think he said no. I said, could I share it with you? And I just remember standing on that 11 tee box sharing the gospel with this guy. And it was definitely a little bit awkward the rest of the round. But the bottom line is, I didn't want to waste that opportunity. I had a great opportunity to share the gospel with him. And I was mindful that that's why God put me in the cart with this guy. Not so that he could be impressed with me and that I used to be a professional athlete, but so that he could be impressed with Jesus Christ. And so knowing your neighbors, knowing that the people you rub shoulders with are providential encounters that God has orchestrated for you to share the gospel. People you're providentially around on a regular basis at work or at school or activities or sporting events or whatever it is with your kids. Family members seize time at family gatherings with extended family members. Fathers, we should be constantly and continually leading our wives and children in the truths of the gospel. And then obviously evangelism in the workplace. Now the scripture has a great deal to say about submitting to authority. Titus 1, 1 Peter 2, Romans 13, and the way we should strive to work hard 
Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 8, Colossians 3, 23 to 24. And in many ways, every job is different, but we would be remiss if we did a poor job at work because we were spending all of our time reaching people for Christ. Folks, God is not pleased when you have to steal time from your employer to share the gospel with other people. It certainly isn't a very good testimony. God's never pleased with us when we have to set aside certain portions of Scripture like integrity and diligence and faithfulness in order to fulfill other portions of Scripture like evangelizing the lost. We need to figure out, by the grace of God, how to faithfully fulfill the command to make disciples without setting aside other portions of Scripture in order to do it. In some circumstances, this means that if you're going to have any kind of in-depth conversation, perhaps, about the gospel with a coworker, you might need to do it outside of work. You, need to, you might need to schedule a lunch with that person and use that hour lunch break for an inroad for the gospel. Or maybe have them to your house for dinner or over for something, a barbecue or whatever it might be. And so those are all different opportunities. But the point is, who should we share the gospel with? Every and any unbeliever that God's put across our path and being ever mindful of that. Well, eighth and finally, when should we share the gospel? The answer to that question is at all times. Again, provided that you don't need to set aside certain commandments of God to do it, like stealing time from your employer or doing it in certain places where it's forbidden. You don't have to wait to reach a certain level of spiritual knowledge or maturity. And you don't have to wait until you think or perceive people are ready to receive the gospel. Yes, we should be striving to fully understand the gospel and all of its implications, and we should be striving to live holy lives that serve to validate the gospel message that we're preaching. The whole book of Titus talks about that. But we're not to wait until we know the entire Bible or until we're sinlessly perfect, because otherwise we'll never share the gospel, right? We're not necessarily to wait until we think they're ready. That's a subjective measuring rod. How are you going to know when they're ready? You don't know when God wants to convert them. Now, if they tell you they don't want you sharing it with them, you don't have to be abrasive and disrespectful. But the bottom line is there's a whole theology today in missions that says, look, we need to go give them certain things first to make their hearts receptive. We need to go give them food or clean drinking water, and then and only then can we go and share the gospel because it's unloving just to go and start preaching. Well, then Paul was very unloving because he never went and did that. And when Christ tried that, all they wanted was the food. They didn't want the gospel. So that's not really the methodology we're called to. There's nothing wrong with showing Christian compassion. We should do that. But that's not a prerequisite, folks, for the gospel. And there's certain schools of theology saying that you cannot share the gospel until you've done this, that, and the other to prep them. The Holy Spirit preps them, and we just go and we preach the gospel as we have any opportunity to do so. We just do it boldly, we do it clearly, we do it faithfully, we do it accurately, and we do it graciously and lovingly and winsomely and in a Christ-like manner. And so that's really the eight questions that we've been looking at. May God help us to take these truths that we've learned over the course of the last four weeks and apply them to our lives for the good of the souls of people around us and ultimately for the glory of God as we faithfully proclaim his word and he uses it to convert all of the unregenerate elect that are still out there that need to hear the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you just for the clarity of your word. I thank you just for the privilege it's been to spend these last four weeks just talking about this subject of evangelism, how important it is knowing that you've left us here after you saved us for the express and explicit purpose of being ambassadors, representatives of Christ in a foreign world. People don't see Christ. He's in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father. And so the only way they're going to know about Christ is by seeing his life lived out in us and hearing his gospel preached through our lips. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful stewards of the gospel that you've entrusted to us and continue to work in our hearts, Lord, giving us a greater burden for the souls of men and ultimately for your glory. We ask it now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.
Any questions? Yeah. <laughs> Robert. Uh, I know you mentioned, I think the key factor is that you mentioned is the prayer for God's open opportunities for us. I think uh, we're very open to that. Uh, I, I can see the times that, that it was for me, uh, the time that God opened the door for me yeah. in a way that it took, it took years sometimes because it doesn't happen overnight sometimes in some yeah. uh, situations, you know, and one was in my job. I work with more than 300 uh, co-workers, and I always wanted to pray in, in Christmas time because they had this big time of celebration, but they were calling me to pray on Christmas time. Yeah. <laughs> so every time, every time I pray, I, I was going there just to spend a little time. They drink and they do all the craziness. I just eat and I go home. But every every year I pray that God give me the opportunity. It never happened that way, but it happened in a way that the vice president uh, of the company, his wife was uh, uh, developed cancer. It was very fast. Yeah. So they called uh, the managers at a meeting, and they said uh, the president of the company said, uh, "Keep uh, it was his name was Joe. Keep Joe and his wife in, in your prayers." But these people just just that none none of them prayer, you know. That. Mm -hmm. So I said to him, it was like fifty people. I said, why well, we don't pray now? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. You want to pray? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't pray, you know. Yeah. So I prayed the gospel. That was my first yeah. time in, in ten years working in this company. I worked for that company like three more years after that, and the reason was because uh, there was a lot of changes, but. Um, the second opportunity was she was very sick. So now they knew that I prayed, so they called me out of the blue one time, and he said, the president wants you to go and pray in front of everybody. Yeah. Because the uh, vice president's wife is dying. Mm -hmm. So I went to the Bible and I said, God, this is what I've been looking for <laughs> all these years. You know, I, I didn't, tears came to my head. I couldn't believe that that was happening. Yeah. They put a microphone for me and everything. Now all I wanted to pray was the gospel. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing I wanted to do, pray the gospel. To my prayer was not much of a healing or nothing about yeah. Pray for uh, them to understand the gospel. Yeah. There's a point in time that we will give an account to God. Yeah. And I tell you this, I don't know what happened. I know that I prayed the gospel, but yeah. at the end of the, the journey, a lot of people were like, how did you learn to pray like that? You know, they don't pray, you know, they just, yeah. most of the people. But it was a great opportunity. I mean, what a blessing for me to do that. It is. But like I said, prayer is what opens the doors. Unfortunately, through the years you become busy, mm -hmm. busy and busy, and you said you miss those opportunities. Yeah. <coughs> I, I have one more opportunity, many opportunities, but this one was clear to me this past week. Uh, I'm Paulus in the back. Yeah. The guy carved it down, and I was just to say what the problem was. I was not thinking about the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it dawned to me, I said, I mean, this guy is here with a broken car, and I just wanted to fix the car. And he's not able to fix the car, so so as I go back to my car to get a little um, business card, I said, I have to preach the gospel to this guy. So I come back and I said, uh, have you ever heard the gospel playing right there? Yeah. I mean, going in any direction. And he said, well, um, Actually, yes. I just spent five years in prison. He told me, oh, wow, this is another change. Yeah. change totally. He said, I, well, I used to be a drug dealer, and I got caught. And uh, every time uh, I was in prison, they come to preach to us, and uh, you know, the chaplains or whatever. But then he said, but they were not real. They were like, really, they preached, but then they don't leave that. And I said, well, that happened at times. But you know, anyway, but it's no excuse, because the, the gospel is the same. You know, I started preaching the gospel to him. I spent, and this is my problem. I needed to be by five o'clock, go back. Uh -huh. <laughs> that was my problem. That's the main problem this time. And this is what I think we struggle all of us. Because I was not thinking that when you share the gospel, you need that. Yeah. Uh, it's not like a one, two, three, and you're gone, you know? So I knew that for a fact that I was going to spend time with this man. And, and let me tell you, it was the most blessing I was sharing with Hannah, I mean, of, of the whole week. Because, I mean, 
and my agenda was I, I go to police, I do this, and I go back home, I have to do this and that. And yeah. That's kind of my agenda. Yeah. But the, sadly, that's how we're living today. Absolutely. It, it's very hard, and, and it's hard because uh, you know that people, maybe said they're dying, and they don't, don't have Jesus, and we're like busy on our own agenda. And then we always pray. Monday night, I pray in the morning for God to open the door, give us opportunities. Yeah. And I think we miss it more times. <laughs> yeah. We miss it because of the busyness of the day, you know. So we You're right. And, you know, all that. Yeah. I guess God has to change our heart in that direction. Yeah. So. But you're right, prayer is very key. One, because obviously God being sovereign, meticulously sovereign over all of life, orchestrates all of life. And so you're praying and all of a sudden, opportunities that you just never had all of a sudden start popping in your lap or it makes you just more cognizant and more conscious of people that are around you that you just weren't conscious of prior to that. And so prayer kind of works in that twofold element of God opening doors providentially and making your heart more sensitive to the people around you. And all of a sudden, you're going to see that, wow, there's a whole lot more opportunities here. Well, oftentimes they were there the whole time and you just didn't see them. But oftentimes God is opening, you know, strategically and specifically and sovereignly doors of opportunity for gospel ministry. So prayer is exceedingly important. Yeah, and you have your Bible handy I did have my Bible in the car, so I opened the Bible, I shared with him different passages, and he shared with me that he was struggling with alcohol now, uh -huh. after he was released from prison, and uh, his wife would come in the same way, you know, so, so I said, well, you know, let me pray for you, so I prayed over there in the, in the middle of the parking lot, and uh, the funny thing, when we finished, and I'm about to leave, I said, hey, give it a try, see what happened to the car, <laughs> the car really started. <laughs> I started, and the body was dead, and he started. And the guy said, wow. Wow, this guy's a prophet. I'm coming to his church. I, mean, I don't know if you can deal with that, but I said, you know, well, praise God that it works. You know, so, but it was funny that it does uh, happen. You know, yeah. It, it was just amazing opportunity, and I think I, I missed many times this opportunity because of business. Yeah. Did you put your hand on the hood? <laughs> 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 yeah, I did it. Yeah. Any other questions or comments before we close? What well, one question? Yes. The blind man in the Bible. I'm sorry? I, I, question about the blind man in the Bible. I, I know he was confronted with the issues of his life and, and all he said was, all I know that I was blind, now I can see. Uh -huh. Now I heard that statement many times. Can you explain a little bit of that statement? It has to, it, it does have related with the gospel or, or, or something else. Uh, because he clear, it sounds like it's the gospel, you know. Uh, that he was blind and now I can see the number of the yeah. and I know many people use that as the gospel because sometimes we use the excuse to say well I don't I don't have a lot of knowledge I don't know a lot of it, you know. I, I can actually the gospel so so they use us as, as a part of uh, this guy didn't know either so uh -huh. he used what he knew so yeah so I think you're referring to the man born blind and Jesus heals him and stuff well uh, he's he is physically blind and he yes. gives them physical sight yes. but it's intended to be a spiritual illustration that he turns on the Pharisees in, in that particular chapter and even John 9 now you may be thinking uh, you know in John chapter 11 I don't know which one you're referring to in John 11 where they put him out of the synagogue or John 12 where they put him out of the synagogue or but in John 9 he basically goes and he uses that illustration of the man born blind who is healed and then you know he says Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him he said do you believe in the son of man he answered and who is he sir that I may believe in him Jesus said to him you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say you, we see, your guilt remains. So you can see that he healed them physically, and then he was converted spiritually, but he used it as an illustration to talk about. He's just using metaphorically there that those who are blind, meaning those who recognize 
their, their blindness, their spiritual poverty, are made to see, meaning they're saved. And those who claim that they see, in other words, we, we see fine, we don't have any sin, we don't have any guilt, we don't have any need, remain in their guilt. They remain in their blindness. Kind of like, you know, it's not, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, there's none righteous. He means I didn't call the, come to call the self-righteous, but sinners. You know, I, I, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, he means those who think they're well and don't need physical, I mean, spiritual healing, remain in that state. But those who recognize that they're spiritually sick and need healing are the ones who, who basically call out to God. And obviously God regenerated them, helping them to see that. But yeah, he's taking the physical reality which happened and using it as a spiritual illustration. That makes sense? Yeah. Just a reminder that the reason of this review of the gospel, uh, Daniel, <laughs> who's not here today, yeah. Daniel is very excited about sharing the gospel, and uh, he actually went by himself to the Soviet. But uh, he uh, he wanted us to maybe as a group sometimes to go out and share the gospel in his place. I told him that I'm available whenever it happens, you know, so just to let you know that it's going to be opportunity for that in the future. Yeah, yeah and we're we're actually working on ma- possibly writing our own gospel track. I just wrote a couple things so we'll see about if there's a way that we can uh, print those or whatever and get those to be able to pass those out eventually so any other questions or comments before we close no okay well let me just close this in prayer father again thank you for this time thank you for the interaction over your word and again i pray that you would just stir our hearts that you would indeed open up doors of opportunity for gospel ministry give us a keen sensitivity to those who you providentially placed around us. Give us a burden for their souls. Give us a boldness to proclaim the gospel, to be intentional, to initiate, to deal with our laziness or our selfishness or our fear of man and all of those things that no doubt plague our hearts at times and preclude us from being more faithful. We want to be bold evangelists for Christ and we want much fruit to come from that evangelism for the souls of men and ultimately for your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.